Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. $2 billion worth of real estate sold per year, 600 transactions per year. There's 75 employees on the team. That's a serious business. Patrick Luther and his partner, Matt Musavi, oversee that within the SRS National Net Lease Group. Pat is a self-made guy who lost it all with many sleepless nights before arriving to this massive level of success. He embodies a true American entrepreneurial success story. Did I mention he's 33? Buckle up and enjoy the success story that is Patrick Luther. Super pumped for today's guest, the one and only Patrick Luther with SRS. Pat, how's it going? Hello, Aaron. It's good to be with you this morning. You as well. I appreciate you taking some time. I know you are all over the place all the time, and we're definitely going to get certainly very deep into your story. But before we talk about how you've done a gajillion deals on the investment sales side, I want to dig deep. I want to hear about your upbringing, where you're from. Because I think that a lot of the guests that we've had in the past have realized while they're talking to me, and, and therefore it's our listeners have been fortunate enough to hear it. It's like how they grew up and how they thought and how they're made up has actually led to where they are. So where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What was your family life like? Like, Give me the background. The little Patrick, what was he like? Sure. I think that is a good place to start because I attribute a lot of kind of where I am today to how I was raised. And there's certainly context around and a series of unfortunate events that kind of led to me being here and how I ended up. So I grew up in Phoenix and my dad's a doctor out there. He's retired now. Mom is a pharmacist and they met uh, due to those connections, the pharmacist doctor thing. And uh, I'm the oldest of five. So they proceeded to have five of us. We're Irish Catholics. So everybody's a Catholic or Mormon, one or the other, but uh, Catholic is the answer. So spent my youth between, you know, my dad rotated hospitals between Southern California and Arizona. So about half of my life, call it age, you know, one to 10 was Southern California. And then 11 to graduating from ASU was Arizona, Phoenix. So My parents were always big on education. They were always big on kind of Catholic education. So what kind of happened there is I went to, ended up going to this all boys Jesuit Catholic prep school for high school. And it was kind of one of a couple of those types of schools that they had in Phoenix at the time. But that kind of plugged me in and got me my first exposure to real estate. I would kind of walk around campus. It was a kind of like a college campus, even though it was high school, just because they had a pretty good donor base. And I would always pay attention to like, you know, someone would donate an arch or a fountain or an athletic facility. And it was like the Robeson Gymnasium and the et cetera, et cetera. So the Eller building, whatever it was. So I would Google these names back in high school. And so this would have been, I'm 33 now. So this would have been 16, 17 years ago. So early 2000s. And the one kind of commonality between all these people that had enough money to build things on campuses, they all did real estate. So the Ellers, the Robesons, these families around Phoenix, 
the commonality was they were all real estate developers. They were home builders. They did industrial, retail, et cetera, et cetera. So I just figured, hey, this is a good way to make a living. You know, my parents were fine. My dad was a doctor. He, you know, he's very much a day job. He wasn't a surgeon or anything like that. So, you know, we grew up just fine, but spread it across five kids. I mean, we weren't taking exotic vacations and things like that. On the other hand, in high school, I met kids such that their idea of like high school spring break is they'd hop on their dad's jet and go on a ski trip. Again, real estate guys. So I guess the kind of lesson there is I started my networking really, really early. And I knew I had to figure out a way to kind of get into the industry. And I I had decided early on in high school that I wanted to do real estate. So senior year, I would have been 17. I was allowed to start taking real estate classes when the market was just very much on fire in Phoenix at the time, right? Everybody was doing condo conversions, taking big apartment buildings, splitting them into condos, and then selling off condo units. So that was where a lot of people were doing well at the time. I ended up getting my real estate license and call it summer of 2005. As soon as I turned 18, you could apply for the test. So I went into state local, went into ASU, studied finance. And kind of throughout this process, I hung my real estate license on the residential side and I was selling some of these condo projects. So friends and family you know, were kind of buying these things from me and I was kind of hustling on the residential end. And I made some paychecks at the end of high school, beginning of college. And I was like, wow, this worked out really well. And that sort of distracted me from being very involved in school. My grades were fine, but it really wasn't a priority. I liked working and I, I liked working a lot. So I would jam all my classes into like Tuesday, Thursdays. And then I would go into the office, call it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So as soon as I got it, my beak wet on the residential side, I, I had always had my heart set and my eyes set on doing commercial. I never liked the idea of... Susie not liking the wallpaper. the cabinets and the countertops. Yeah, you're exactly right. It was very emotional, I thought. And I would tell you today that commercial is absolutely no different. It's just different types of emotions. <laughs> and be equally emotionally charged in discussions and interactions and transactions. So I end up selling these condos. I'm like, I think I'm the king of the world. It's fast forward. It's I'm probably a sophomore or junior at ASU now. and you know, I don't know if I can say this on the podcast, but I, I remember I made like, a, I was like 19 years old. I made like 150 grand in commissions or something like that. And I was like, oh my God, this is more money than I could ever imagine. I went and bought a used Range Rover, which so just absolutely like the worst thing I could have done. I made every mistake you could imagine. You were almost like a professional athlete, right? I mean, you were 19. Yeah, like- I was living beyond my means. I was like... You know, I had my like little Hugo Boss suits on that I was wearing at the time, my Range Rover, you know, and this was like the era of like big rim. Everybody wanted rims. So it was like 2000s. So I looked at chrome rims. It was fun. And then fast forward, things start to feel a little weird in 2007. And then the wheels completely fall off the bus in 2008. And I remember I was, I graduated in ASU in three years. I cranked everything out as fast as I could. I did like every winter and summer session because I wanted to get out and make money. And then just the music stopped. Just put this in the context for a second. So you finished in three years. What year was that that you finished? I graduated in May of 08. Oh, perfect timing. (laughs) (laughs) Ideal. But you know what though? It sounds like that could have been a blessing in the skies for you, right? Because it's not, you know, look, it's terrible to make a lot of money and then have it all go away. But assuming that you're in college, given that most college students have nothing, you just went from having a lot to going back to where everybody else is. It's not like you're 45 years old with three kids. and No, thank God. Yeah, no kids. 
in a happy relationship now that's been going on for about three years, but uh, no kids, no wife yet, that sort of thing. But no, it was was a great time to start because I saw the end of the go-go years and then basically got going in the beginning of the worst climate imaginable. I want to stop you there again because you did a great job of telling your story about your upbringing and how it had major influence on what you're up to today. You casually mentioned that you're one of five and that you're the oldest. So obviously, you lead a team of how many brokers now you have? There are 47 agents. Right. And being the oldest of five is probably more challenging than having uh, 47 agents, right? Yeah, it's. I was kind of a bit of a shithead in high school and college. My family is very, very important to me now, and we spend tons of time together. But I wasn't around. I was that kid that as soon as I graduated high school, I rented an apartment. Before I even moved into the dorms, I got a short-term rental. So the day I could get out of my house legally, I did. And uh, so I was a bit of a free spirit and I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about like getting out into the world and trying to figure out how to make a living. And a big part of it too was I... And I still kind of think this way, but I harbored a bit of... And it was just jealousy is the only way to describe it. Envy or jealousy of all those kids that got to do... They got to do all these fun trips and their parents were wealthy and everything else. And my... Again, my parents didn't struggle, but they always could have used a little more. They were never truly comfortable. They always stressed out and had a bit of an anxiety. There was always a degree of anxiety around the home about money. But at a very young age, you know, if I wanted anything, I had to pay for it. If you want to rewind, when I was 16, I wanted to get out of the house to get a car. And so my parents said, they're like, well, why do you want a car? I'm like, beyond it being cool to have a car, you know, it gives you freedom. And they said, okay, well, you have to pay for it. And I said, well, I don't have any money. And we created this sort of deal where they were like, all right, we'll lend you $2,500. And I bought this used... It was actually my grandma's. My grandma donated me her used Cadillac like Coupe de Ville. The thing was like red. (laughs) I love this. Red leather, red exterior, late 80s. So my parents bought it from my grandma for like 2,500 bucks. And then my deal was I could use the car to get a job and it would transport me to and from school and then to and from my job. And so the car was like embarrassing though. I didn't think this was like a nice thing that they did for me. I was pissed off. I was like, my friends are driving BMWs and you know, like, why do I have to deal with this stupid Cadillac? It was just like, it was embarrassing. I'm like, you're a doctor. Why, why don't I get a BMW? So I was, I was a little shithead about it, but it allowed me to go to and from a my first job was at a grocery store because you can get those jobs when you're like 16. And so I eventually saved up and I bought myself a nicer car. But I was taught at a very young age, like if you want something, you need to go to work and figure out how to pay for it. So that that was always a big part of my childhood. It was like, if you want something, figure out how to pay for it. So you know, this whole ASU real estate thing, before all that got going, I had three or four jobs. I valet parked. I was a bartender. So I did four or five things at any given time before the paycheck started hitting on the condo sales, to get my exposure to commercial, I was interning at Marcus and Millichap. So that's kind of the first entree into... You know, I was making like 8 or 10 bucks an hour. I worked for an investment sales guy. And so it was ASU, it was selling the condos. And then my hourly job was the Marcus and Millichap thing. I ended up getting that job because my mom's girlfriend that she would just have Chardonnay with, her husband was an agent at the Marcus and Millichap office in Phoenix. So I just basically begged my mom's girlfriend's husband to make me somebody's intern. So he just kind of threw me into the boiler pit at 
Marcus and there was an agent that needed some help for the summer. And that's kind of what I started doing. Amazing. So this happened, you were interning at Marcus the summer going into your last year. I'm not going to call it your senior year because you think it that long. Yeah, this would have been like, I did two summers. It would have been like 2005, 2006 or 2006, 2007. I don't remember the exact sequence or which two summers it was, but the easy money was in these condo sale projects at the time, just making commissions. That was one thing I had the foresight over beyond like blowing all my money in college, which was knowing that that whole buy an apartment complex, convert the units to condos and sell them off. That is a business plan ceased to exist in like 2008, as soon as the market imploded. Mm -hmm. So you graduate May 2008. You've been on this roller coaster already with experience beyond really anybody else that's within 20 years of your senior's existence. And you're here you are, you've gone from broke to very high income earning to basically broke again or on a path to being broke yeah. as a college graduate at like 20 because you did it in three years. 21. 21. So you're an old man at this point. And yep. it's May of 08. The world is horrendous. And then what happens? I go to ICSC, May of 08. It was my first ICSC and I wasn't affiliated with anyone at the time. So you were working on retail at Marcus as an intern. Correct. Correct. Got it. Yep. Okay. Got it. Got it. Important to delineate because you probably wouldn't have known what ICSC was otherwise. Yeah. I actually rotated in multifamily as well, but I was always chasing something. Like another thing I learned early on is it was so easy to make money in 2004, five, six. So when I was an intern, I was working with a kid who's probably mid 40s now. And the agent I worked for in any event, he was 26 years old. And I don't know if it was like a, a lesson for me or what, but he, sold the shopping center and he had like a $170,000 check and he made me go deposit it in the bank. That was one of my, beyond getting coffee and dry cleaning and all the usual stuff that everybody tells you they do, which they actually do make you do those things. I had to go deposit this check. So I was like, oh, wow, this is so interesting. And he at the time was 26 or 27. So I was like, great, like this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go work at Marcus Millichap. I'm going to make so much money. So then the wheels obviously fall off the bus and... I graduate and nobody was willing to hire. Everybody was like, yeah, I'm not taking on junior brokers. I'm not even going to pay you the 10 bucks an hour anymore. Things are changing rapidly over here. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm still going to go to ICSC, my first one. I heard this is what you do. You go to ICSC. And I remember like, I bought a suit with the little money I had left and I flew to Vegas. And I, I think I had like five or 6,000 bucks in my bank account left at the time. And the ICSC registration was like $1,000 or something like that. So between my plane ticket on Southwest, my suit, I spent like almost every dollar of what I had left. I remember I didn't know any better. So I just looked at titles and I just looked at every executive vice president I could find at like CBRE, Grub, etc. And I made this little list and I just walked through ICSC and I didn't have any meetings prearranged. I just had a stack of my resumes and I walked booth to booth to see who was willing to meet with me. And <laughs> as you can imagine, that was not very effective. Like nobody yeah. wants to meet an intern in summer of 2008 or spring of 2008 when the world's ending and take time out of their ICSC schedule to come talk to me. It was like the last thing anybody wanted to do. Hey, pharmacy who's struggling to pay their rent. I've got to stop this meeting now so I can meet with this prospective intern. Yeah, I can't imagine that went over very well. Correct. Did not go over well at all. There was one guy that I ended up having a decent conversation with. 
and he was still very tentative. It was a guy at Grubb and Ellis. He was getting older and I think he was just tired of, he's actually a good mentor and friends, <laughs> but he was tired of taking sign calls on small spaces. So I said, shit, if this is the only gig I'm going to get, I'll do it. So I followed up with him after ICSC. He's like, I could use a fourth guy on my sign and you're going to be the cannon fodder. You're going to take all the retail leasing sign calls. I'm like, well, this is an investment sales. This isn't what I want to be doing, but I guess I'll take what I can get. So I accept this job with this guy at Grub. It was no pay, 100% commission. So I'm like, all right, well, and the job was in Vegas of all places. So in Vegas after ICSC. So I'm like, all right, I, I guess I'm moving to Nevada. This is fine. So I moved to Nevada in like August of 2008. And you got to remember, I have no money left at this point. So I sell the Range Rover, pick up some cash there, borrow a family car indefinitely. Shitty one. So now I've gone from like Range Rover, all this stuff to back down to like it was a Honda CRV with like 70,000 miles on it. It was like our kid's car that just went through every all in that five members of my family. So I moved to Nevada and to get me by in my first year of leasing brokerage, I was a bartender at the Mirage and I was a union restaurant worker for like the Casino Restaurant Union Association and I would bartend at the Mirage. So it was really, it was pretty humbling at the time to kind of go back to that level. And so I was getting my ass kicked during the day on calls, sign calls, and just trying to figure out leasing brokerage now. The world was imploding. Nobody was signing and doing anything. And I'm stuck in like the armpit of America, whatever, Vegas bartending at night, which was, that was not a good, you know, people that do that, it's a fine way to make a living, but it's not the highest quality. There's some people in there that are doing it to get an education. And there's some people that are just like, substance abusers, the only job they can hang is a bartender barback server and they do that for their whole life. Like so it wasn't the best environment. So I wanted to get out of it as quickly as I could. And I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead, but one thing led to another and I sold a building maybe 12 months in, got a decent commission and then I quit my bartending job. Oh well hang on. That's a big jump ahead. Yeah. That's a pretty critical part of your story. So you're fourth on the totem pole leasing agent and you sold a building that something happened. What happened there? Yeah. So the problem with leasing is we had a lot of REITs as clients. We had a Kimco. We did some of their work and at the time. And so nobody wanted to do leases because businesses weren't opening in 2008, 9, 10. So this was my whole Vegas time. I was there for about two years. But during this time, tenants weren't signing. And if they were signing, the rents were very low. Well, all the institutions said, look, I'm not going to encumber my space with a lease if the rents are truly this poor right now. So nobody just did anything. Everybody just sat on their hands. They're like, we'll just, we'll wait for the NOIs to creep back up or we'll wait for business to boom so we can get 2 to $3 shop rents again versus, you know, we were doing like 1,200 foot spaces at like 12 bucks a year, triple net. So, I mean, the rents were just horrible. You know, you barely made any money anyway. I think my first year at Grub, that 2008, call it 12 months, 2008, May of August of 08 to August of 09, I think I probably made like 20,000 bucks in like commission. Got it. Good thing you were bartending. Not livable. Yeah. And the bartending, maybe I put another 20 grand in my pocket doing that. So it was livable, but it wasn't easy at the time. And, you know, again, you have the pressure of two jobs. So it was just, I was barely sleeping and it was ran me pretty ragged at the time. But anyway, what I started observing is all these assets were changing hands. So that was another fun force to deal with was that you know, our, our actual assets were being taken over by lenders. And then so our listings are automatically terminated or be voided. And I would have to figure out what bank or lender wanted to hire Grubb and Ellis and me to continue to lease the shopping center. 
And half the time, they just wanted new blood in there and they had some other buddy or a court-appointed receiver that would fire us. So I got the wise idea at the time. I just sort of fell into net lease organically. And I said, okay, look, the only thing that's selling right now are credit net lease, right? These single tenant buildings are still selling. Shopping centers, like there's so much disruption and sort of like COVID, right? The collections aren't where they need to be. Some of the tenants are going bankrupt. You're not getting rent. So the only thing that anybody's buying is like a single occupied bondable lease with Starbucks, AutoZone, Taco Bell, whatever it is. So one of these shopping centers that we were leasing starts going into foreclosure. And I call the note owner. And I didn't even know how this relationship existed between note owner. I had no idea how the foreclosure process worked. But I found the number for this guy who apparently bought this note under the shopping center I was leasing. So he, he hadn't even foreclosed. But I called him and I said, Hey, I've got this idea. You know, the shopping center is all busted up, but you've got an auto zone out there and you've got a Taco Bell. And I said, I have somebody who wants to buy those. Did you have somebody that wanted to buy them? I did not have anybody that wanted to actually buy them. <laughs> I love that. I knew that was coming. That's why I asked the question. Yeah. I figured I could find someone if I could get him to agree to sell them. And he said, Okay, well, I don't own the asset yet. I had no idea what that meant. I just said, Okay, property for sale, get offered to buy. The rest will sort itself out. And so I managed to get my leases out of him and I figure out we established like some sort of an asking price. And this is how I did the first deal. I picked up CoStar and I did, I looked in reverse. And I hate to give CoStar any kudos, but I looked five years into back into history and I looked at everyone who bought a single tenant building in Nevada. And I started at the top of the list and I got to like number 20. And this lady, she actually just died like two years ago. Shirley Goodman of the Goodman Family Trust in LA. She picked up the phone, squawking at me from her palace in Beverly Hills. And I said, Hi, I'm Patrick. You know, yeah, why are you calling me? I'm like, Okay, well, I noticed you bought a Carl's Jr. a couple of years ago. Okay, get to the point. Like, what have you got for me? Is what she said. I was like, Oh, wow, this lady's like no nonsense. And I'm like, Well, I've got an off market Taco Bell and an AutoZone. And she goes, Okay, tell me about them. And she didn't even say that. She goes, okay, I'm going to put you in touch with my attorney. And then she forwards me to this attorney who I have to have a call with. And about 24 hours later, they say, hey, send me the leases. I'm like, okay. So I send the leases. Still don't know what I'm doing. Still don't have a listing. Don't have a marketing package. I'm just sending leases out. And they come back 24 hours later and they're like, hi, Patrick, thanks for the leases. We'd like to buy these. Here's the offer. Like $8 million cash for both paths. Holy moly. Or whatever it was. It wasn't quite that much. But And so this offer shows up in my inbox. I'm like, Oh, like, okay, now what do I do? And so I just, I guess I'm like, all right. So I just forward these offers to this guy who holds the note under the shopping center. And I think he bought the note for probably about as much as we got for him by selling these two pads. So he's thrilled. I have no idea how, what's actually going on in the background. He's like, okay, this is great. I'll take this offer. And I think we, we maybe countered one time, but I think he was just pleased to delever the asset and sell off the pads. Because these two users had 15-year leases. So it was like, I'm never going to get them back anyway. I'm just going to sell them off. So you know, we enter into PSA and we entered into a PSA condition upon him foreclosing and taking title to the property. And so it was a really, really messy contract. But fast forward 90 days later, the thing closed. He forecloses, he takes control of the asset. We then sell the two pads. And he's in the shopping center for nothing. For almost nothing. Yeah. And so he's like, send me your commission invoice. And it was plus or minus like 150,000 bucks or something like that. So it was a good fee, more money than I'd ever seen at the time. Even these little condos, these were little checks, 10, 15 grand at a time. 
So I walked this check into Grubbin Ellis and they had no idea I was working on this. And I just like sat under my manager's desk. I'm like, hey, I just sold this. And he was like, well, what? And I was probably, I think I was 22 at the time, 21, 22 again. So he's like, wow, that's great. Hold on. I need to talk to some people about this. And so what ended up happening is my senior came to me and was like, this is great. You did a good job. So what do you think you should earn on this? And it was one of those conversations. Like we had nothing in writing. And he's like, well, I'm the senior, you're the junior. I think he paid me like 25 cents on the dollar or something like that. Paid me like 20 or 25,000 bucks. And I was like, so I was very excited about my first deal, but I was like, huh, that's interesting how that worked. I'm like, I brought in 150 and you gave me 20 back. I'm like, that doesn't feel that good. Pat, I know you pretty well. I don't see you taking that very calmly. I didn't know better at the time, but I started to develop a sense of resentment over it. Essentially, that type of arrangement happened with two more single-tenant pads, at which point I said, and I came to this conclusion pretty rapidly, I tend to be pretty decisive. If I set my mind in motion, there's sort of no turning back. And so after that happened two more times, about a month or two later, I followed the same process. Note, foreclosure, call the lender, sell the asset for the lender. My next client was Wells Fargo. I sold a building for Wells Fargo that they foreclosed on. They weren't the tenant, they were the bank that owned it. That whole arrangement of 25 cents on the dollar was seemingly going into perpetuity with my senior. And I think I was too scared to have a real argument or a conversation. So I just abruptly quit. Okay. And I just said, I'm out. I can go do this on my own. And I did. So I ventured out kind of on my own at age 22. <laughs> okay. It didn't go over well with Grove and Ellis. They weren't happy. They were like, hey, this isn't how this works. Like, you're an adult come talk to us. Let's work something out. I'm like, no, I was pretty resentful at that point. The next phase was I ended up meeting Matt Musabi, who's my current partner. So when you left Grabanellis, did you have like Luther commercial real estate or something? Like, No, there was like a one month period in between where I was just floating and I had nothing going on. Prior to leaving, I had started to build a relationship with Musabi. And he and I are now co-partners and own this entity with an SRS, the lead the sales practice. But I got to know Matt because I was leasing a shopping center that he was selling. It was a big shopping center at the time. It was like $60, $70 million, which he sold in kind of the bottom of the recession or the eye of the storm. 2009, I think he closed it. And it was LNR was the owner. So LNR took this messy lifestyle center back. And I was like, wow. So, and you know, Matt's a couple of years older than me. So I was probably, Matt was probably 20 eight at the time, at this time, yeah, 28, 27. And I remember I thought that was pretty impressive. And I was like, okay, well, here's a new mentor, potentially for me, and, and it's a younger person that I can connect with. And I essentially just started sort of begging Matt for work. And he's like, well, look, I'm in Southern California, you're in Nevada, you'd have to move to Southern California. So I quit Grub. You know, it was only at Grub for probably a little over a year. So this would have been like, summer, fall of 09, or maybe 10. But in any event, by then, abruptly, give my apartment back in Vegas, pack all my stuff back into the Honda, which I still hadn't gotten rid of, and then I drive to California. So now I'm probably 22, 23, and I'm heading out to greener pastures in Cali to work with Musavi. At Ferrisley. That was, yeah, that was the company that I met Matt at. And that's where we uh, started working together. So Ferrisley, we... You know, Matt's starting to ramp up on single tenant stuff and he just sits down with me and 
we he sort of said, look, I kind of think the market's moving. This is like 2010 at this point now. So he's like, hey, I think the market's starting to move in this direction. You know, the single tenant stuff, we can do a lot of volume. There's a lot of scale. And people were doing it. There's kind of the old guard of net lease guys that started doing it in the 90s, but it really kind of started to mature in like the mid 2000s with coal and ARCP. So Matt's like, look, try to go after this stuff. And I remember he's like, these dollar stores, everybody seems to want to buy these. So we sort of reverse engineered it. We just said, look, what do people want to buy? And again, right when coal and ARC, which then turned into Vreet and everything else, back in the day, like Nick Shorsh and the ARC guys were literally, there was two of them with a pop-up booth and they would go to these ICSCs and they would just set up the booth. And it was like, now Jason Sleer, all that executive management from the REITs, They've now since retired and made millions and millions of dollars and everything else. But it used to be just them at a booth. And so I would go to these ICSCs again at age like 23 with Musavi. And he's like, look, make a list of the attendees here. Let's go talk to them. And these guys at ARC were like, yeah, you know, we've got a couple billion dollars we're going to raise. And so why don't you try to sell us as many of these things as you can? Go find us a bunch of dollar stores. So I'm like, all right. So that was my first pursuit as I just started calling family dollar developers and saying, I have this quote buyer and it was just a REIT. And now everybody knows who the REITs are and it's not that. There's nothing that novel about the idea of taking a net lease REIT public and everything else. So we started doing all these off-market deals with REITs and we learned sort of the relationship between merchant developer, how projects are built, how long they take, and who the end buyers are. And then we sort of transitioned from buy side to you know, going to these people and asking to formally list them before we sold them to the REITs. And we kind of began formalizing things, I would guess, in 2011, plus or minus. So at that point, you know, Matt and I kind of said, okay, we're going to just throw everything into a pile that we generate and make. We're going to create nice marketing packages and with our mugshots on them. And we're going to get websites and we're going to use LoopNet. And here's how we're marketing NetLease. And we're going to really be professionals about this. And it was all about like, do we hire a graphic designer and an admin? And so that was kind of just the infancy of all of it was, you know, again, probably 10 years ago. And really, and now I'm fast forwarding a lot, but one thing led to another in our first year, you know, at Grub and Ellis, I sold those four properties. Then with Matt, I probably sold eight. And then the next year, it was like six. I remember it kept doubling. This would now, it was 2011. It was 2012. It was maybe 16. It went to 30. 2012, 13, it went to like 60. And then I remember in like, it was 14. And then Matt and I did, we broke 100. We did like 100 transactions or something like that. The two of you alone with really no support team, is that at that point, certainly you've got some people working with you if you're doing 100 transactions. We finally did when we broke things open that year and did like 100 some odd transactions. And we finally got an assistant and all of this has been formalized now, but we literally just bootstrapped it from the beginning. Like we always had a graphic designer and like an analyst. We had somebody that could do the pictures and the maps, and then we had somebody who could read leases. And then we finally got a transaction coordinator. So yeah, I would say in 2014, it was a team of like five. And then we realized, okay, like now we've got to move this ahead again. You know, the transaction coordinator, right? Like every time we do a deal, we need critical dates in escrow. We need to really run a process and be organized with this whole thing. You know, we list something, here's what happens next. So we developed more of a system and a processing center or sort of conveyor belt to service our inventory. And it was, look, we get a listing, we package it, we market it, we sell it. Right? Here are all of our steps. So we just sort of designed this process. And again, I think it was a little more novel 10 years ago than it is now. But 
we continued to grow it organically. We probably did 2015 now. We Then we probably got up to like 150 transactions. And then we got to the point, I'm like, okay, there's only one of me and one of Matt. And so we've we've got to partner with and hire other people. And at that point, we said, I don't know if Ferris Lee's the place to do this. I don't think they can really invest in what we're trying to do here. And I had pretty ambitious goals. I'm like, look, I want to build a really big team. And you know, if we can do 150, why can't we do 300? Why can't we do 500 a year? And we just said, we need to hire more people. And we either need to have our own brokerage, which is very expensive and daunting, or we need to go find a brokerage company that has the ability to float our payroll and really support us. And we came to the conclusion and you know, there's a lot of confidentiality around the sort of my departure from SRS or my departure from Ferris Lee and move over to SRS. So I can't give too many details on that. But you know, SRS effectively said, yeah, what do you need? Here's a blank check. And I said, look, I need over a million dollars a year to go run this thing. And they said, well, that's a lot of money, but do you think you can do the volume? And I said, yeah, I do. You know, Matt and I now are doing X transactions. We think if we come over and you pay for our marketing packaging, not only can we do more, but then we can go hire a dozen other people to do this too. So SRS had not done investment sales. They were a leasing and tenant rep company. And we said, great, Matt and I can own a little bit of something uh, in partnership with SRS. So they're the mothership. We manage the investment services practice within the company. So I manage a P&L or an entity within this whole mothership. And they pay the bills. And you fast forward five years later, and you know every year you add a couple people. And again, there's 40 some odd brokers, including me and Matt. It's right around four, it's 49 people. And then we've got about 20 staff. So there's kind of call it 70-ish people that I'm responsible for. And you know, we're doing six to 700 transactions a year, and it's about $2 billion worth of product. And those people and offices are spread across seven different states. So that was a lot of fast forwarding, but that's basically exactly how it happened. I'm 32. And I get told often like, wow, it's really cool what you're doing. And age. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm so fortunate to have the Rolodex of people that I have in this business. There's a couple of people on this season, inclusive of yourself, who are very similar in age. And like people like you continue to inspire me, right? Because you are what you're around. And to be able to call you not only a peer, but a friend and think about how you have scaled this business and the way that you have and the time that you have alongside with your obviously incredible partnership with Matt and what you guys were able to structure at SRS. There isn't enough words that I can say to you to commend you on the business that you've built. And the foresight that you guys have had collectively, I mean, it's amazing. I don't have another word for it. It is absolutely amazing. But I, the only thing I would say is it wasn't without a lot of brain damage, sleepless nights, whether we were doing the right thing and whether we could handle it mentally, emotionally, etc. There's a lot behind that statement. We could have a whole other conversation about that. But it was very, very trying and taxing to make the transition to SRS to sort of build the thing from scratch. We were sued. So I, you know, we were dealing with lawsuits when we left. The whole kitchen sink of challenges was sort of thrown at us. We persevered and got through it, but there were some very, very dark days, dark weeks when it was very taxing. And I would tell you that all I was ever told, and this chip on my shoulder just kind of got me through it, which was 
my parents aren't developers, right? They aren't in real estate. They were fundamentally extremely important in introducing me to the right people and exposing me to the network, which again, started in high school. But you know, I didn't get handed listings. There was no nepotism on my side. So I just sort of had to go figure it out. And I always had that chip on my shoulder about like, look, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to figure it out. And Matt Musabi is the same way. He doesn't have any family in the industry. So, you know, people have this perception that he's Persian, obviously. They think he's like, you know, the heir to some Persian Jewish West LA fortune buried. <laughs> but he's not at all. His family are just normal engineers from Orange County. All I was told was no. All I was told from a very young age, you know, and this was Grub and Ellis, Ferris Lee, et cetera, it was walk before you can run. No, you're not doing that properly. You shouldn't be doing that. When I was doing leasing, it was focus on leasing, stay in your lane, don't do sales. When I was doing sales, Ferrisly, it was like, oh, you're not capable of doing multi-tenant or more complicated transactions. Keep selling dollar stores, right? So, and I, I would attribute a lot of where I am today to people telling me no and the degree to which that pissed me off. And <laughs> Love that. the degree to which I wanted to tell, I wanted to prove everyone wrong. You know, I think my issue in getting from whatever my next phase is, and I've got some things in the works and I'm brainstorming, but uh, I need somebody to really piss me off and tell me no <laughs> to kind of get me to the next level. What does the next level look like for you? I mean, this is a pretty sizable business. A lot of people in your position, I mean, granted, you're 33, so you have a ton of time left, but like, what is the next level look like for you? Yeah, I think so. One, we've got a lot of runway and I struggle with a sense of contentment and not wanting just more, more, more. Right. And that's sort of, you're not really going to be good at this job if you don't have that mentality. It's an eat what you kill business and you don't get paid for second place. You either, you either get the listing or you don't and the listing closes or it doesn't. So there is no silver or bronze. Right. So, you know, with that sort of guiding mentality, you got to be careful. And I, from the mental emotional side, it's like, how do I not self-sabotage in a way that's just counterproductive? So I would tell you two things. One, it's A, we have a lot of runway, but B, I'm trying to find a sense of self-worth and purpose beyond just making money in my job. And a sense of contentment, I think, in lifestyle fulfillment is important, right? You do all this stuff and you'll wake up and you'll be like, hey, look, yeah, I'm 33. I've done all this stuff, but does it give me a lot of meaning? I think the biggest meaning that I derive out of sort of the job is I do enjoy mentoring and hiring young people. I like seeing people that were my age that I can pick out. It's very hard to do. It's very hard to find the right people that kind of fit the mold to be successful in brokerage. And it's even harder now because the talent pool, people don't want to do brokerage anymore. It's very old fashioned. Like you, you pick up the phone, you cold call, nobody wants to do that. They want to go work for tech companies and they want to go write code and change the world and do all these things. That's kind of not what we do to some extent. But so that it's A, it's hard to find talent, but grooming talent, et cetera, is like, that's why I guess what would be fulfilling to me. So I enjoy that aspect of building the brokerage. So I don't think I'll ever give that up. I don't have some delusions of grandeur where I want to build the next like CB Richard Ellis or something like that. I think it's very hard. Most of these big public brokerage companies run very low margins. So if you look at everything they do, there's certain areas where they make a good amount of money and there's other areas where it's like just lost leaders to retain business. So the next step is just changing the complexity of... And that's what's stimulating is changing the complexity and the reach and the depth of the projects we go after. And the easiest way I would define that is instead of and this has kind of happened organically with me, is just I don't spend as much of my day selling dollar stores anymore. I'll spend more time 
looking at structured finance on a whole shopping center and do we sell off pat? What's the strategy of an entire living, breathing asset or a larger portfolio of assets? The dollar figure is one thing, call it 50 million plus, but where you've got 30, 40, 50 assets in a pool and you've got to figure out how to structure that between the loan, between staggered lease terms. So I would call it a bit more of an intellectual, intellectually stimulating. You're still doing brokerage. I'm still selling assets, but it's larger, more complex transactions, generally with smarter people. And that's kind of what gets me going. So continuing to build the brokerage side of the business with just the people side and then continuing to challenge yourself intellectually and mentally by working on more complicated deals than yeah. the single tenant dollar general, which is, you know, I'm sure you'll never deviate from that because that's how you got to where you are, but still our bread and butter, right? And like I still pick up the phone and engage on half a million dollar deals if the client's important, etc. So I don't really have a sense of I always say there's like no nobility in this business per se. It's just consistency is important and just showing up every day is important. And I would tell you that some of the biggest, largest assets I've sold, 20, 30, 40, 50 million portfolios, have started with something that was a million dollars. The genesis being a guy who had a Sonic drive-in that we sold for a million bucks in San Antonio, Texas. It wasn't even a million bucks. It was 800 grand. He liked how we interacted. Matt and I interacted with him on that project. And he was the board member of a public restaurant company. So that one guy that we sold that $800,000 property for is like, Hey, you know, could you guys sell like a hundred million of this stuff for XYZ company that I sit on the board of? And we're like, yeah, well, of course. And so we ended up getting, then securing that opportunity, then selling that hundred plus million dollar portfolio as a function of showing up, doing the right thing and treating this guy properly on something that was seven, 800,000. Right. And I would have missed out on that if I had delegated that $800,000 deal to a junior broker, or if I had just said it's small and not paying attention to it. So the point is like, always return calls, pick up the phone, give people the same level of respect and attention. Yeah, this is easier said than done. And I struggle with these things every day. But I try to operate in a way where I give everyone the right amount of time and attention, no matter the asset size. So sounds like a dichotomy that you struggle with, but seem to manage through and do well with. I mean, let me ask you this, because I know a lot of the people in the net lease community may think that uh, this is a fallacy, but I assume there's got to be a weakness in you somewhere, somehow. And if so, what is it and how do you work through it? I would say I'm, I can be short tempered. I tend to move fast and I tend to, you know, just slowing down and thinking things through, I think is something that I'm working on personally, professionally, et cetera, right? You, I tend to bulldoze through or bull in a china shop my way through situations. And the older I get, the less that I end up doing that. But taking a more thoughtful approach and looking at things from every angle versus just feeling like a processor or an order taker, that's the kind of the difficult thing about net lease is it's so programmatic is that you can just kind of get in this rut of just transacting and really thinking strategically and counseling your clients on the right decisions is very important, obviously. But what I would struggle with is missed opportunities on the basis of moving too fast and or being too narrow-minded or short-term focused on whatever's in front of me. I would argue though, at the same time, like you are who you are and anybody who fakes it is never going to be happy. But like I would argue though that that personality trait or those personality traits, I should say, would 
were critical in your success. Like you picked up your life and moved twice. And both of those moves paid off dramatically, right? Like you got into the business by picking up and moving to Vegas. You teamed up with your now business partner by picking up and just going to Southern California by doing it and being decisive and going. And you led with revenue and you, as far as growing the business, I mean, you guys were a team of four or five people doing a hundred transactions, obviously running lean and mean. And I give you a lot of credit for putting the car before the horse a little bit, but just working your ass off to get to where you needed to go. To, and that was the path to figuring it out. Well, yeah, you have to give people something of value, but you, you know, in the beginning, before your time's worth anything and before you really have any expertise, you just kind of, you've got to donate it. You got to give it away for free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that. I specifically remember going to lunch with you and Brian Wolfman yep. out in California after the open air conference back when I was with Peb. And like, I was a leasing guy. And you gave away information and you were talking to me. And we were, I was with back when I was with Peb, Rob Truett was with me. And we just talked and you didn't know where that was going to go, what was going to happen. And here you are now, you, Brian, Matt, and the team. I mean, you guys have done like five transactions for Zig. Like it's paid off for you. And I'm just one little small fry out of a bunch. So the reason why I go on that rant is because I think it's important that the listeners understand that you are not just saying that for sport. Like you genuinely mean that. And for those who don't have any other takeaway from this, like those are great words. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is just like, people always go like, what's the secret? And I think the biggest part you should take away from my story is, I don't think there is some big secret. Like I worked my ass off for a very long time. I tried a lot of things. The only reason I am where I am at my age is because I started very, very young. So start early, engage often and take the guidance of your superiors, but don't be so nervous to make moves on your own and to take risk and to just go for it. And by go for it, I mean, to an extent, right, you have to have a rebellious spirit to be a good broker. You can't just be told what to do and wait for the phone to ring. You got to go just figure it out. I mean, you got to be And this is why some successful brokers are, you know, a lot of them are athletes and a lot of them are jocks. And frankly, I would tell you a lot of them aren't that smart because it's just, you got to be able to get kicked in the balls and pardon me for saying that online. (laughs) No, you're good. (laughs) You got to be able to get kicked and keep going. And I can't tell you how many times, and this is probably me being very candid, but I can't tell you how many times I almost quit and I gave up and just said, I'm not going to make it. I was a little bitch. I would go home and freaking cry. Like at age 21, 22, I was alone in Vegas. I didn't know anybody. I was like, God, is this really what I want to be doing with my life? This is horrible. Like I'm not making any money. And my parents, friends, family, everybody all the time, they'd be like, you know, you have an education. Why don't you go take a salary job? Why don't you go do this? Why don't you go do that? It's like, no, I'm going to make it work. The only thing that kept me going was that, you know, chip on my shoulder to just prove everyone wrong. But it's just, I don't think there's any secret sauce. It's just show up every day consistently. It's a marathon, not a sprint. If you just set your mind to something and you do it and you do it every day, like it's not going to just all of a sudden flip-flop and you might get lucky, but the harder you work and the more consistently you do something, the luckier you're going to end up being, right? And so you put yourself into situations where you're going to get lucky just as a function of having so many at-bats, right? Like you're only going to make so many baskets if you take so many shots. And that's, I guess, is what I would recommend. Now, at some point, there's always nuances to this, but it's like the 10,000 hour rule, man. Like I didn't just get lucky. I just started doing this stuff when I was 17, 18. And I had five years under my belt by the time I was 23. That's really the only difference. <laughs> You're a 33-year-old living in a 38-year-old <laughs> professional's body. <laughs> no, I feel super old. Yeah, I meet these people today and I'm like, God, I'm like in the 
mid-range for net lease. I mean, there's not that many guys over 40 that are really doing net lease. I mean, there's some jack-of-all-trades brokers, but it's kind of a young man's sport. And I fully expect that we're always struggling for relevance. And I struggle for it every day. It's a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately type of business. And five years from now, there's going to be another version of me that's trying to chop my legs off, you know, or whatever it is. Right? So <laughs> you've always got to stay on top of it, stay relevant, stay fresh. And, you know, a lot of that is, again, just you got to keep the same level of intensity and energy as I had when I was 21, 22, 23, right? You just got to go to work every day. You got to pick up the phone. Most people don't have big breaks and epiphanies, right? Like not every stock is going to be a Tesla, right? It's just consistency every single day because it's not an overly complicated business. Like ask people, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Like just people will start paying attention to you and they'll start taking your call just as a function of like, it's a war of attrition, right? It's like, I have people that have given me listings purely because I've just shown up and I've asked and I've asked over and over and over and over. And I've done it politely, right? And you do it and and every year that goes by that you keep asking, you establish a little more credibility. And they're like, oh, you're still here. And I would start to get that reaction at ICSCs. Like, yeah, come talk to me in a year. And I would remember those things. I'd take notes. I'd go to their booth the next year. Hey, will you meet with me? Okay, shit, kid. You've been doing this for three years. Fine, I'll sit down with you. There you go. I love that persistence. So I've got three more questions for you. We'll do them in relatively rapid fire. Are you a reader? I don't read for pleasure because all I do for work is read. I read leases. I read contracts. I will rewind a little bit. I read every... From that age of 18 to 23, I read every freaking cold calling, life coaching, sales coaching book you could imagine. And which one changed your life? You know, you just go back to the Carnegie stuff, man. I like how to win friends and influence people is a good one. There's this book by this guy, Massimo, and he's a big sales coach guy. I'm sure he's by his book. It was called Brokers Who Dominate. And it was just like eight or 10 paragraphs and chapters on like practices of top producing brokers. And a mentor of mine gave it to me. His name's Ryan Schnell. He gave it to me. He's in Southern California. And he circled and, you know, earmarked the pages. was like, remember this, right? And I still have that book. It still sits on my desk. And I give it to all of my juniors. I'm like, read this one. So... The tools you use for sales, all that stuff, the technology, all that stuff's helpful, but it doesn't replace a human getting on the phone. And so, but salesmanship and all that stuff. So I kind of had to learn it because I didn't grow up. It wasn't like dinnertime talk in my house. But you generally, that's why you see so many brokers are like, it's multi generational because it's like you just learn the gift of gab and you learn the personality traits and how to behave in an environment that allows you to sell and interact with people. The hardest thing to train young brokers is the ability to communicate like an authentic human and communicate some sort of likability. At the end of the day, if you're just an asshole and people don't like to spend time with you, they're probably not going to give you business. So that's where like the whole empathy factor and like be somebody that people want to spend time with is important. Funny how that works. A lot of simple things adding up to a complicated and sophisticated level of success. All right. So you're 33. So you have like 50 more years of doing this at least. Yep. One day you're going to retire from the business. You're going to be done. You're going to be like, I'm done. I'm over it. The young guy finally caught me after 50 years. And ICSE, when they put out that shopping centers today thing, they do it by email now. Who knows? They'll probably be like channeling it to our watches or something. Who knows how it'll be done in that point in time. But when you do hang it up, they're going to be like Patrick Luther, one of the godfathers of NetLease, if you will, is hanging it up. What do you want that article to say about you? What do you want your legacy to be like from this business? 
And the question sort of embarrasses me because I look at it like, hey, I'm just another guy and I just got to keep showing up every day. And things will work themselves out if you kind of keep your head down or work hard. So I haven't really thought about the legacy question, but I think I would... I think you just answered it though, is Patrick was so consumed with doing things the right way and being consistent that he never thought of himself as somebody who had this crazy legacy. And at that point, you will have sold billions and billions and billions of dollars in real estate. I mean, it's inevitable. Your group's doing $2 billion a year. So it's going to be some daunting, ridiculous number. And the mantra with you, and I know you well enough to say this, is like, he just worked and he did it right. And he took the tips, that one tip that several or multiple people continuously told him over and over. And the big difference between Pat and everybody else is he actually did it. When somebody gave him that advice, he incorporated and he saw what worked and he repeated and he rinsed and repeated. And he did it the right way with an unbelievable work ethic. I've never known you to turn it off at any point in time. No. And I think it's truly like it's a calling for me and it's a lifestyle. It's like, you're not going to get to the level I'm at if you just consider it a job. And if you just, you clock in at eight, and you clock out at five. It's just not going to happen because there's going to be somebody like me that's just going to crush you. (laughs) But if I had a legacy, I'd like to be known for two things that I'm self-made and that that guy was the hardest working guy in the room. And that's enough. And the bank account that comes with those things is nice too. But you know, at the end of the day, I think it's like that guy worked his ass off and he did it on its own. And granted, I had a lot of help. I'll tell everybody I've had a lot of help. I've had a lot of good mentors, but being very independent, self-reliant and just figuring it out. And then to parlay it, it's do that without self-destructing, right? Like be happy, have a good family, have some form of like faith or higher calling or power. Like just be a good person is important too. Pat, as I mentioned earlier, I'm incredibly impressed, proud, envious of everything that you've been able to pull off. And I'm lucky to have you in my network. And I'm so glad that you were able to carve out some time for us because I think it's really important that the people, especially the brokerage community that got into the business, call it after 2011, when you guys were kind of riding the momentum of the world coming back on, who've never really seen dark days. I think it was really important to relay that story. So y'all got to take care of each other, man. It's just going to get harder and harder out there. So... Well, you've done a major service for the industry by being on for the people who decide to listen, which I'm humbled to say is increasing every day. And it's because we have badass guests like yourself. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts. 